Hello and welcome to A Queer Understanding, weekly conversations about all things queer. We are your hosts, Dr. Angelica Thompson and Akessa Thompson. For more information about the show and to hear more episodes, visit us at aqueerunderstanding.com. Content warning. This episode contains sensitive content that may be difficult or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Today we're speaking with Maurice Tomlinson, a Jamaican-Canadian recovering attorney at law and nursing student. For over 15 years, Maurice has acted as counsel and or claimant in cases challenging anti-gay laws before the most senior tribunals in the Caribbean. As such, he is the claimant in cases fighting Jamaica's ban on same-sex intimacy in marriage, as well as the refusal of TV stations to air pro-LGBT ads. Maurice also authored reports to regional and UN agencies on the human rights situation for LGBTI people in the region, conducted judicial and police LGBTI and HIV sensitization trainings, and facilitated human rights documentation and advocacy capacity building exercises for regional LGBTI groups. Maurice coordinated the first global conferences on the role of churches in maintaining anti-sodomy laws, and he is also the founder of Montego Bay Pride, which held Jamaica's first public pride march in 2018. Maurice holds an Honors Bachelor of Arts in History from the University of the West Indies, a Master of Business Administration in Entrepreneurial Studies from the University of Calgary, an Honors LLB from the University of the West Indies, an LLM in Intellectual Property Law from the University of Turin, Kulati, and a Certificate of Legal Education from the Norman Manley Law School in Jamaica. Maurice was called to the Jamaican Bar in 2006. He is now studying to be a practical nurse. In 2012, Maurice received the inaugural David Cato Vision and Voice Award, which recognizes individuals who defend human rights and the dignity of LGBTI people around the world. Here's our conversation. Hi, Maurice. How are you this evening? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Yes, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So I understand that you're an attorney and you're in nursing school. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition? <laughs> sure. Well, I have been an attorney called to the Jamaican Bar for about 17 years now. And initially, I was an intellectual property lawyer focusing on um, business law. And I was helping the LGBT groups off the side of my desk with their organizing. And um, that drew me into advocacy when I realized how much they were being, or we, because I am a part of that community, yes. were being discriminated against using the law in terms of education, housing, healthcare, you name it. And so I started doing some research around human rights law um, because it was never an area that I concentrated on in university. I wanted to be a rich lawyer, not a poor ass human rights <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I realized working with the community that there were some issues they were facing that nobody else wanted to take on because it was professional suicide to be seen to be associated with the LGBT community as a lawyer. 
you're going to court for us or going to police station. So I brushed up on some human rights law, went and did a couple matters. And um, I began very quickly to realize that the privilege I had as a lawyer didn't insulate me from the discrimination. And I started getting death threats because of the work. I was, um, you know, targeted. And I realized that unless I work to change the situation, the legal and social situation, my privilege was just a mirage. It could be taken away at any time. So I transitioned out of that into human rights law thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to work on a couple of cases. I'm going to get rid of some of these laws, the anti-sodomy law, which we can talk about later, the discrimination in housing and healthcare and education. I I thought just a couple of cases would be over. (laughs) Well, uh, no, the court system is very slow. And one of my most successful cases um, took about 10 years to resolve. And even so, the government was ordered to pay damages and has refused. So I, I became very disillusioned because I became a lawyer to help people. You know, um, I take my inspiration from my mother um, of blessed memory who died last year. She she was my inspiration in terms of always looking out for the strays and the vulnerable. Right. <laughs> um, and so initially I thought I would use law to help vulnerable people, I realized it was taking way too long. And when I turned 50 last year, I decided that I wanted a more immediate way to help people. And I'd I'd had an experience when I just started my advocacy work, working with an HIV hospice. And I realized that that was very fulfilling, helping people in the most vulnerable situation when they, were, they needed immediate health care. I didn't care if it was, you know, wiping their bums or um, it didn't matter to me. I, I'm not squeamish. And so I said I was going to go back to that field and I am now in nursing school. So I will hopefully finish in fall, if I ever survive, <laughs> you will. it's hard memorizing stuff at my old age. <laughs> yeah. I understand. So here I am. Okay, yeah, that is that is a very interesting and inspiring transition. Uh, your desire to to help people in in any way you can is is very inspiring. That is true. It's very inspiring, and it also is something that you don't see every day where someone moves from being an attorney to a nurse just to help people. So I'm sure the story is going to inspire someone out there. Somebody's going to be like, you know what? Let me take a step on doing something that I really want to do. That's that's the point. I think we all are sometimes, I should say, we're sometimes embarrassed to think that we can step back. We can step off the treadmill or the rat race, we can do what nourishes our soul because we are socialized to think that it's always about chasing the the almighty dollar. And for me, my son is now in um, university overseas doing law. And I think I have accomplished what I wanted to with the law and there are some cases that are still ongoing and I'm still supporting them, but I don't have to stay on that, you know, that never ending treadmill. I can step back and do what nourishes my soul. Exactly. Absolutely. So you just mentioned a son. Um, Are you married? 
So I was married to a woman in Jamaica mm -hmm. and uh, we have a son and he's now overseas studying. And uh, when that marriage ended, I eventually met and married my husband who now lives with me in Canada. This is how I end up in Canada. <laughs> okay. Uh, can you take us through through that particular transition? <laughs> <laughs> um, so growing up in Jamaica, we are told that homosexuality is an abomination. It's a biblical abomination. And we should try and change ourselves. And I grew up in a very staunch Pentecostal church that eschewed anything to do with same-sex attraction. So I really tried to do all the right things. You know, I, I dated. I really, really tried. Um, and my best friend at university was a girl, and she was um, aware of my same-sex attraction. And she was okay with it because she had gay friends. It was, you know, I tell people, think of Will and Grace. Right. You know, <laughs> that kind of situation. And I think when my last relationship broke up and her last relationship um, with a guy broke up, we kind of were chatting and we said, well, you know, we're good friends. So the sex really can't be that hard, can it? It's just friction after all. <laughs> um, and the church basically said, you know, just, just pray about it and have a lot of straight sex and that will cure you. Right. Well, needless to say, that didn't work. And mm -hmm. I realized after a while that I was mentally cheating on her. Uh, and I knew that would have gone into um, physical cheating. And I said, no, this is ridiculous. We, we have to end this. Um, and uh, initially, it, there was a lot of pain, but I think we realized it's for the best. Our son is doing very well right now, and our focus is on him. So she was aware of your same-sex attraction. Were other family members aware? You know, that's an interesting question because there's always a don't ask, don't tell right. in Jamaica when it comes to same-sex attraction. And my mother, later on in life, much later, she told me that she knew I was gay at age 12. Wow. But wow. she was hoping that I would grow out of it. Mothers know, you know, mamas know, honey, mamas know. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> Um, I suspect my family knew, but they were hoping it wasn't so. Right. Um, and we, we just never talked about it. And I even tried denying it. I mean, as I said, I got married. Um, right. I tried to do all the right things. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've gone to the altar and been prayed over. And, you know, it, it it's just a farce. And it, it led to a lot of sadness. I remember the most traumatic thing for me was after our divorce, I formed a group in my home based on an American thing. I don't know what you want to call it. It's a conversion therapy kind of setup where mm -hmm. it's called Homosexuals Anonymous. Okay. And yes, yes, yes. And we'd meet in our home, um, in my home, and it's all the gay guys who are trying to deal with our same-sex attraction. And we'd pray about it and we'd talk about all the gay sex we were not having and all the gay sex we did not want to have. And needless to say, all this talk about sex led to one logical conclusion. We all end up sleeping with each other at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of counterintuitive to be talking about sex and, and talking about the sex you wish you were having and used to have but shouldn't be having anymore. And shouldn't, oh, we're not, no, we're not doing it, no. You yeah. Know, and, 
<laughs> and we just, at the end of each meeting, we'd pair off. And when I realized at one point that everybody had paired off with everybody else, I was like, okay, this is over. We're done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just living so I, your truth. You know, yeah, I, I find, you know, the whole conversion therapy thing is so preposterous if it wasn't so sad. Yes. Because every single one of those um, conversion therapy groups have been led by people who invariably have gone on to marry their same-sex partners and then, you know, apologize after the fact and all of that. Is it, it's ridiculous. You're literally talking about sex all the time and telling yourself, I'm not going to be having this sex, which is the one thing you talk about all the time. It's just bizarre. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that was, that was the story of my um, attempt at conversion. And I realized it wasn't working. And that was that. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a very common thing to go to the church because I grew up Pentecostal as well. And when I came out at 15, I grew up in Claremont, St. Anne. You know, that's real country. When I yes. came out at 15, I used to be sent to the Tabernacle Church in Claremont, St. Anne. Every evening after school, so the pastor can pray it away. <laughs> it's a very well, common thing in Jamaica. Hopefully, that's all the pastor did was try to pray it away and not try to cure with other physical interventions. No, he didn't. Because well, that is also a common occurrence where you mm-hmm. know they try to cure women. I mean, it's a horrible term, but corrective rape of lesbians in Jamaica is a thing. Yes. Wow. Um, and the women we know are socialized not to report. Because invariably they are caregivers or, you know, they have children. They don't want to rock the boat. And so um, I reported on one incident in Jamaica, conversion therapy, which really distressed me. The two lesbians were raped by a group of four men. And I think when they were done, they used a knife to slit her, one of them, um, her vagina. Because they said the reason she was a lesbian is because she was too tight. And she never reported it. She never reported it to the police because of the shame. Wow. And mm-hmm. all of this, you know, Jamaica knows. These, these, these are the things we're doing to our people, our children. But we just, we just prefer this delusion rather than accepting that this is a fact of human existence and, and just love people. You know, one love. Where's all of that? It's, it's very distressing. One love unless you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's ridiculous there because the, the leaders of the country are some of, some of the people who are pushing this type of behavior as well. Yes, and I sadly am of the age where many of them were my university colleagues. Right. And I know that they know better. But there is this powerful church lobby in Jamaica that controls the votes and they have a captive audience every Saturday and Sunday because we know that in Jamaica you don't have a choice about going to church <laughs> you have to go to church at least, you, at least until you turn 18 and you can make up your mind yeah. you have to go to church Yeah. and so in this church with a few exceptions the topic that is the most popular and guaranteed to fill the offering plate is homophobia yeah. Anything that is anti-LGBT is guaranteed to fill the offering plate. You want to bring in people, just talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it, it, it's just ridiculous. And the politicians see how popular this homophobic rhetoric is from the pulpit. And they use it 
in their campaigning, even though they know better. Let's be honest here. I mean, if you were to do a survey of the cabinet of Jamaica or the (laughs) parliament of Jamaica, you say if walls could talk, (laughs) if the cabinet could talk, people know it's a small society. You know, people know who is doing what to whom and when. Mm-hmm. But we pretend that it's not happening. And the churches are happy about this lie. And then, and, I, and, and I think one of the things that also annoys me, well, two things annoy me. The politicians who are on the down low, when they're ready to get their gay on, they <laughs> leave the island or they go to their you know, secluded um, parties and they do their thing. And then they don't try to rescue their brothers and sisters and others in the LGBT community by standing up, right? right? They, they don't do it. Mm-hmm. And they have the temerity to tell me that it is our responsibility as an LGBT community to change the society. That's what they've told me, you know. I and us as LGBT, we must change the society. We must show a poll that the level of homophobia in Jamaica is below 50% before they will stick their necks out. They're not standing up because they're not, they're not jeopardizing votes. They're not willing to sacrifice votes, even though it will benefit them in the long run. Because they live in gated communities. They drive where they need to go. If they want to do the gay thing, they go overseas. We must just learn how to be quiet about it because guess what? They have done it all this time. So that's one thing that pisses me off. And the second thing that pisses me off is that they know how many men on the down low in Jamaica are married or have women partners. And they know that many of these men are having unprotected or condomless sex Mm -hmm. because they can't walk around with the condom because the wife will ask, what are you doing with condom? It's me and you alone and, you know, me and the pills. So so they're having all this this condomless sex. And that is how we have HIV spreading and we have all these other STIs spreading, you know, because people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to face the facts Mm -hmm. of what's happening. So we have a public health crisis that they're ignoring. And we also have this really sickening political crisis where the people who can do the most, because they know better, they go to good school, <laughs> they know a lot of gay people, but they're not willing to stand up because, you know, they can't sacrifice. And, and that just, I, I, I can't get it. I, I'm of a different ilk, I suppose. I can't, I, I can't do that. Right. And then the, the documentary, The Gully Queen, when I watched that documentary and you listen to those, um, members of the LGBTQ plus community that live under the bridge in Jamaica, they will tell you that some of the people that come out there to have sex with some of these men are big profile men in Jamaica that have sex with them. Of course. We know this, that many of the down low men seek out sex workers and they pay these sex workers, male sex workers, for condomless sex because they like the ride the bareback. Right? So they pay them extra. And so they know that this is causing um, infections to spread, but they're not willing to talk about it. So it's a a very short-sighted approach, very, very short-sighted approach. And we know it's going to harm the women. It's going to harm the children. It's harming the whole society. And who are in the churches, who who make up the churches? What was the majority of population in churches after age 18, when the men can go about their business? Women. So if only Jamaican women understood that the homophobia that they're hearing from the pulpit is harming them, directly compromising their health and the health of their children, then maybe they'd be a little more open to discussing the issue. 
realistically? So I have a very good friend that I went to high school with in Jamaica. He's a three-stripe corporal, so you know he's high up in the ranks. And he's married to a woman, they have a, they have a child. And I talk to him very often. He's so unhappy. At one point, he told me that he probably feel like he would want to die because he does not love her. He's a homosexual, but he's so afraid to be himself. Because he's like, if I come out to be who I am, I'm either going to get killed at work or killed on the street. And he he don't really know anyone much. They're more than I just say, they go do what they do on the street with these young boys and what of you. So, right. you know, it's, it's it's something that I see with my own two eyes because he will call me sometimes and he will talk to me and he's not like he just want to cry because he's not able yep. to do himself. I've known so many men who are who were in my situation in sexless marriages. And, and I don't think these men, um, like me, we, we didn't set out to deceive. And I, I hear people say, oh, you're trying to deceive. Mm-hmm. We literally believe what the church said. You just have to have a lot of straight sex. And pray about it because it's just friction and God will cure you. But now these men have children. They might not say they quote unquote love their wives, but they do because this is someone who at one point gave them a child or is someone who agreed to spend the life. And sadly, many of the women also know, you know, because they're not fools. But for the sake of image, they have to put up with this pretense. And there's so much unhappiness. And unhappiness results in sporadic, erratic, dangerous, self-harming behavior. And this is this is what I want to put a stop to. It's hurting everybody. Um, my divorce was painful. Right. But I would not ever want to be in a situation where I'm sentenced to a, a loveless marriage or a sexless marriage. Um, for the sake of society, that no, that that's wrong. But we're just not willing to accept that in Jamaica yet. Right. Wow. Okay. Let's pause right here this week. We hope you join us next week for part two of this much-needed conversation with the incomparable Maurice Tomlinson. See you next week. Thanks for listening to A Queer Understanding. We hope you heard something that resonated with or inspired you. Join us next week right here at A Queer Understanding. And as always, live your truth and be unapologetically you.